<coughs> so we'll take some questions tonight. We can have enough light to read. Right. <coughs> so, Right. What is right view regarding nature? The more aware I am, the more beautiful I find nature. I see beauty in everything, even basic man-made things. Beauty is a perception, perhaps, or is it a mental formation? Is the experience of beauty one that should be cultivated? It certainly makes me happy. Or am I clinging? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the more aware I am, the more beautiful I find nature. Mm -hmm. I see beauty in everything, even basic man made things. Beauty is a perception, perhaps, or is it a mental formation? So, is the experience of beauty one that should be cultivated? It certainly makes me happy. Or am I clinging? Mm -hmm. The more aware I am. Well, hmm, what um, tends to happen as the mind becomes a bit more cleared of its obstructions um, and uh, coverings, you might say, the mind is often covered with preoccupations and all kinds of um, moods and things like that as that begins to fade we get a click the perception aggregate the ability to perceive becomes clearer becomes more sharp yeah um, so then you, you, your receptivity increases and that uh, sense of an increased receptivity um, <clears throat> gives a certain kind of a uh, sparkling imminence to to the mind state or to the consciousness. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So there's a few things there that uh, it's it's uh, so the experience of beauty is to be cultivated. You could say that, but it's really. The process of why things be, why things can be experienced as beautiful through the clearing and the freshness of the mind, that process is to be cultivated. If you associate that with uh, any heightened or more fuller awareness, that is to be cultivated. You know, <clears throat> a little bit of clinging is kind of okay. I mean, there's you kind of just got to start to cling to less obstructive things. So you, you sort of reduce the clinging quality you know, or the sense of identification. And actually as that identification with things also reduces, again, things seem more beautiful because they're not smeared with, well, like that, fancy that, don't want that, don't want that. could I have one of those, but I could store it up. That always spoils it. So there's something about the the freshness and the openness 
of of the mind, which gives everything becomes um, sort of itself, rather than just my, you know, in that sense, of, there's a sort of freshness and freedom that can occur with that. Hmm. Now this is um, so. Hmm. Perceptions, consciousness, so. Consciousness is really to do with a state of consciousness. Yeah, so, yeah, so you can have different rain, many different states of consciousness. So, consciousness can be grad- gradated either in terms of its eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, and so forth, or it can also be gradated in terms of this consciousness associated with uh, malice or with love or with you know so ethical qualities can also be calibrated or in terms of its refinement so there's a kind of a slightly uh, uh, more refined consciousness uh, means it's it's it's, it's uh, subtler 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 more sensitive and so that that is associated particularly as a progressive experience with the cultivation of things like uh, loving kindness and uh, uh, jhana, samadhi, you get subtler, more refined states of consciousness where the consciousness becomes kind of subtle and, and, and with delightful in itself. Mm. So that can be cultivated. And yes, there, there can be clinging to that. Yeah. So, but then really the only way to reduce clinging, uh, to, to, well, to really eliminate it is to, is to understand it. Understand the the favouring and the preference and the identification uh, with with that particular state. When you see that the state itself is compounded, come into being, cause conditioned, originated, subject to change, then then that that state can still exist, but there isn't the clinging to it. That's what I would say with that. With any any state of consciousness. The difference between consciousness and perception is that they, they kind of arise simultaneously, but consciousness is the basic, you say, the basic receptivity that notes something is there. You know, so you open your eyes and, okay, visual consciousness arises. It means it, there is seeing, there are objects, and the perception is the, oh, we're here, we're Amrawadi. Oh, that's Susan or Joe or something. That's the perception, the recognition faculty. So that comes in with consciousness. So you can't really kind of divide them, but there you can you can kind of you know see that the the, the, subtle, the slight difference. If you see what I mean. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's about all. I would Chew out of that one. (laughs) I think maybe just to add one something really simple is that often, often with the practice, or when, especially when we start with the practice, there comes in. uh, This perception, or maybe I should not have any 
kind of appreciation for beauty. It's like I should be just cool and not feel anything. And like when beauty comes up and when I feel like the the experience of beauty arising in the mind and in the heart, that there's something wrong in that. And I would say that is a misperception. It's just like, of course we do experience beauty, but the point is that the Achan made is just really not clinging to it. And I remember Achan Sumedho, and sometimes I heard him saying, well, of course, like, if you see a beautiful rose, it's beautiful, and you experience the beauty of it. But then what happens to this rose <laughs> after a few weeks or even just one week? It changes. And with that, beauty is kind of um, an impermanent experience. That's, that's yeah, it's not the, you don't want to get attached to the object. But the ability for the mind to be clearer is certainly to be noted and as a source of uh, mm. well-being. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> mm. um, I don't think this is really a question. <laughs> Should I? What? Yeah. It says to both Ajans, it is a very profound and beautiful gesture to see a female and male Ajan teach together. Great gratitude for this rare gift of equality. It is, a, it is rare because generally speaking, this monastic order appears to be incredibly hierarchical with monks at the top. Why the lack of equality? Well, there is a question. <laughs> Buddha moved radically away from the unjust Hindu caste system because it was unequal. Well, actually, like, yeah, okay, I'm not going into that. <laughs> so, so why would he set up his this this or his own unjust unequal system seems like seems like this his teachings have been corrupted no how can unequal hierarchical systems support peace love compassion and justice for all rather than Greed, hatred, and delusion. Thank you. Well, actually, there are a few questions in this, <laughs> but they're a bit similar to you. Um, one thing, just if you trace it back to the time of the Buddha, and this tradition goes back to 2,500 years ago, what the Buddha did at his time was absolutely radical <laughs> and maybe in our eyes it doesn't look anymore like that but you have to take into account the society the the indian society 2500 years ago the place of women 
was like we were we were kind of owned by our husband or the family we didn't like the women at that time they they there there was no chance of being independent the women were not independent they belonged to the husband or to the family if they were not married then they belonged to the family they were like and it was very a very tight social social system and the only women who were out of that system were actually prostitutes and the like the buddha establishing the female order of bikunis of nuns at that time was a step that he actually hesitated to make in the beginning he was asked three times before he agreed to um to establish the, the female order and um one of his uh, foremost disciples his his attendant ananda and cousin he was pleading the buddha to please is there any obstacle why women can't is there is it for women not possible to be enlightened and the buddha said yes it is but i think he realized and he knew how radical that step would be because he would go far beyond of everything that was possible for women until then so this path actually opened something completely new for women and when he was establishing it there were a few conditions that went along with that in order to make it possible and like it's what is called the garudamas and one of these um the rules that came with that was that in the hierarchical line or in the hierarchical system men were always uh, senior to the women even like if a nun was uh, i think it's the saying is even if a nun is ordained for 90 years if a if a man ordains as a bhikkhu and is just ordained for one day he goes in front of her like in the hierarchical line and as our tradition goes as far back as this this is kind of still part of it how even so how we are living this it doesn't feel quite like that and those of you who are connected with the monastery know that we have in the mixed monasteries that we have here in england like here at amaravati and also at chitaviveka the monks and the nuns communities are relatively independent autonomous so like like in the nuns community here or at chitaviveka we have a lot of freedom to decide how we like how we so to say how we run the female community what how we are um how we are kind of 
establishing our life here in the monastery. Like we are, we are making the decisions who is ordaining and becoming part of the community. And of course, we do check in with the monks. Is that person that we want to accept okay for you? Would you accept that person too? But so it is also done from the monk's side. If, if we would have any objections to a man ordaining with a really good reason, we could voice that too. So it's something reciprocal. And um, in my everyday life experience of monastic life, I feel we have established quite a working system. And yet, I'm not saying there's no hierarchy. And like, <laughs> I experienced it many times in Chitta Viveka. Like I'm, I happen to be the senior nun there. And so I'm the, I mean, also at the moment, the only nun. But so in the line, I'm going behind all the monks. And the last monk, is ever so often changing. Like before, he was a Samanera and he was in the food line behind me. And then suddenly, one day, he's in front of me because he has become a bhikkhu and in the hierarchical order, he has moved forward. I think the, what helps to live with that and work with that is not to take this really personal. It's just like, Alisa, I have come to the point where it just really doesn't matter. I, I'm not, actually, maybe that's also a blessing for me. I'm sometimes, or let's say the other way around, I feel it quite, I find it quite challenging just kind of sitting here with the Ajahn. And I would rather much like to be one of the nuns there in the line. It would feel much more comfortable for me. Yeah? So for me, not being in front is absolutely no problem. And I'm really fine with that. For other people with different personalities, it might be different. Coming back to the point of equality, what actually is that? Where in your life do you experience, do you see real equality? I mean, I'm also looking at it from the point of we are coming into this life with a certain karmic load and we all have different baggage that we carry with us. So is there anybody here in the world who could be really equal to me, <laughs> or who I could be equal to. And ask this question for yourself. That's one aspect. The other aspect is like, there should be an attempt for equality. And in society, there, there are very clear kind of laws now and rules to make sure there is really equality. But then, like a friend of mine, in the States, she is a, a lecturer at the university. She works in a department together with men. For the same work, the men gets paid much more than she does. Is that equality? 
is the equality that she is allowed to teach in the same department as the men, but then where's the equality in payment? So what I'm pointing out is the question, isn't that um, equality, isn't that a very nice idea? <laughs> and yet, like how real is it? How, how, like where does it come from? And why do we always have to compare? And like, why, just like say, because Ajahn Suchito ordained many years before me in this tradition, why, why should I claim in any way to be equal? I mean, this is ridiculous. And, and I feel like, I think with some of our, our ideals, it's good to question them. It's good to ask ourselves, what is this actually about? And do I feel, do I feel less what I am depending on where in the line of hierarchy I find my place is. Anyway, it's changing all the time. But is does that does that really matter on the deeper spiritual level? I mean, for me, it doesn't. And I'm not I'm not claiming that that is the view of all the nuns. But that is my experience. That is my. Um, way of relating to this situation. Ajahn, would you like to come and and say something more for me? <laughs> you don't have to, and I don't want to. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I feel, I feel like. There well, there are many things. You know, for yeah. a start, if you don't, I just kind of say a few things, but. In the monk's order, nobody's equal to me. I'm not equal to anybody else. It's, it's so it's in Panyos down there. You know, it's all graduated by the minute. In fact, you know, if someone goes forth a minute after me, he's juniored me the rest of his life. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, so that's that's just an order, and it's fairly anonymous, and it's not really based upon merit or anything really. It's just the kind of order. Um, you know that's that's it really, but of course, being human beings here they are where they are they can add to that all kinds of conceit and projections and inferiorities and all this kind of thing and yeah, like any system, it's prone to abuse it can be prone to abuse because human beings are people who <laughs> can act abusively <laughs> to each other. Um, you know, I find myself the, the the beauty about hierarchy is you just know where you are. You know, oh, well, I sit here, he sits there. You don't have to. It's very clear, and it makes it makes a lot of stuff just happens quite flows along quite easily when you're in groups because you want to know what seat you're going to be in. If you're at a ceremony, you don't know what's going on. You just follow the person who's senior to you. So it's very easy. You just kind of. <laughs> and so that's kind of nice on that level. Other times it gets frustrating because you kind of wish we could just all be guys together or 
guys and women together and just kind of loosen up a bit. But because um, you don't want to be starchy about it. <laughs> but we do that. I think we do that reasonably well, by and large, as you get to know people. I just met and I get on fine. Well, perhaps <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time we get on fine. <laughs> I don't have any issues with her anyway. <laughs> and so, you know, that's, I think, and certainly if somebody's really getting a, a really like a worse deal, like less food or worse lodgings or something like that, then that would be reprehensible. But that, that isn't, as far as I know, that isn't really the case. And we try to make that quite clear and take care that that's all the material things are shared out yeah <clears throat> and then i think what what counts really is whether people are being human and receptive and and friendly with each other you know if there's a reasonable re- relationship that's what really counts it doesn't really matter where you are in a lineup you know on that level mm-hmm. but if people are bullying or dominating then that's that's definitely defilement so it's how you operate it really <clears throat> and it's kind of like every, everything we can there's a certain good aspects these abstract notions like justice and fairness and equality there's a certain value in that but also they can get very harsh and people get really angry and and uh, expect everybody to be kind of like clean and lines and things like that and Life is kind of a bit more, you know, organic than that, really. So that's just all I have to say right now. Yeah. <coughs> what led you to take up monasticism? Does this really, I don't know if this is a question that's going to, help you in your practice, is it? <laughs> I mean, what, I'm not, Maybe somebody wants to ordain. Does somebody want to go forth or something? <laughs> <laughs> Suffering, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> in a word. I, I don't want to... Don't get me wrong, but I don't want to just use the time to ask questions that are really... I'd like to ask questions that are related to practice for your realisation of Nibbāna. Idea, you know, that would be my my main interest at this time. I don't know if you want to say anything on that. Mm. No. <clears throat> In what order, if any, is one likely to attain the full and deep, true understanding of these two critical elements? One chitta, two four noble truths. Would you recommend one? In what order is one likely to attain the full and deep true understanding of these two themes? Chitta, Four Noble Truths. Well, I'd put probably Four Noble Truths at the top of the list myself. Is this your <laughs> okay, I agree. <laughs> I mean, 
It's a bit of a, I would say it's a bit of a kind of strange question. I don't know yeah, that yeah, you yeah. feel that too. I mean, when when you look at the chitta, like it's it's the you could say like the the chitta is the more emotive aspect of mind. So it's when you look at that, like to understand that is really a little bit what we have been talking about all the time the last few days. It's like understanding like how your mind and your heart is affected by what is happening around you, what is happening with you. And yes, it is important, definitely important to understand like what conditions your heart or your your mind what how how is it affected by what is happening around you it's like how is it affected by your perceptions by by um by the the feeling aspects of mind that's that's all like that's what the chitta is that's what it works with this is or like say that is the work of the chitta so, yes, important to understand. And then, I mean, the Four Noble Truths, basically, is the path to enlightenment. <laughs> it's like, and depending on where you are on the path, there are different ways of working with it. And like... The first step definitely is really to understand suffering. It's like there is suffering, the first noble truth. To understand how that manifests in your life, in what way do do you experience suffering. And from that understanding look into where are the patterns of grasping, of clinging that... I do experience with the suffering. So, and one, but I don't know for others, but I can only speak for myself. Like after these two, these two first, like the first and the second noble truth, my, like, yes, there is of course the cessation of suffering, but I'm still quite far away from it. But what's, comes then more into view is really actually there's a way out of suffering there's a way that it's almost like a matrix a a map that that the buddha has been giving us that we can work with the fourth noble truth which is the eightfold path and really looking deeper into that what does that mean what does that mean in my life how like is right view actually present do i have any understanding of right view what is that yeah and then or like one thing that i think many of us experience as quite difficult is Right speech, one big thing, yeah? Right intentions. And like really looking into 
those aspects that in some ways the Buddha has laid out for us to look at, to work with, and to integrate into our lives. Like, like that is the practice, that is the work, that is what we are working with. And when we do the work, cessation starts to happen. Yeah? Cessation of suffering starts naturally to come into our lives. And we start to see it happening with small things in the beginning. I'm not getting upset about this anymore. You know, or like, oh, I'm calm. I'm hearing this. And maybe a few years or a year before this, I have I got upset when I heard this kind of speech. Right now I'm actually calm. So that is that is cessation. It's not happening anymore. Patterns start to change. But the point is really, and it always boils down to that, is that we, that we do our work, that we really take what the Buddha is, has left behind for us and work with it and really honestly look into it like, where in my life do I see that? Mm -hmm. Am I just fooling myself? Or am I really working with it? And when you do, then you will feel the changes that start to happen in your life. And I can say like from the uh, group meetings that I have been part of, for many of you, things start changing, things start happening. And my encouragement is, yes, use these teachings, continue to use them, and that is something that you can trust in. For me, like, mm-hmm. like when I heard the first Noble Truth the first time, there was this kind of light <laughs> coming in my mind, or like you could also say, like, this is it. This is what I have been waiting for. It was just like it hit me in some ways because I could see this is not fake. This is real. And this offers something like an opportunity to move through suffering, out of suffering. And it just completely made sense. Even <laughs> if I would have been asked, what is it about? I could, I could have only said, it was a revelation. It's that, that's it. <laughs> but then you gain, or you understand more and more of it. And you have to give yourself time. Don't force anything. Don't try to be where you are not. That's not what this path is about. That's all I have to say right now about this. I don't know if you <laughs> if you want to say more, John. Um, well, yeah, I mean, the question yeah. was quite simple, which, which is more yeah. important. <clears throat> I suppose 
just you know the way it's important to, to recognize what it is that suffers the chitta and what it is that can be freed and mm-hmm. so I think one of the confusions that occurs for people who think jitta is your, is your thinking experience yeah. <laughs> and and that that isn't we think that's the mind we use a word like mind well that you know isn't going to Enlightenment is not a concept, it's not an idea that arises in your mind. It's the freedom of heart. So if you really get a sense of what we're looking for, where the results are going to happen, what we have to work with is these effects in our hearts of, you know, despair and misery and um, aversion and confusion and sorrow. It's not, so you're looking at something that's a very direct experience and jitta as even more profoundly or more fully means that any whenever you say will you, will you ever say uh, I am I you're talking about your chitta mm. there's experience that the sense of self holds sits on so it can be a very subtle sense of feel, you know being being anything really, being uncertain, that's your chitta. Feeling not wanted, that's your chitta. Feeling that it's everything's up to you, that's your chitta. Feeling you've got to do everything, that's up to you, that's your chitta. And these things that don't necessarily come as verbal thought experiences, they come as impressions and the, the, the and senses of self. And that sense of self where that where that sits is extremely intimate and uh, quite can be quite raw something experience that people either don't want to talk about or can barely talk about without feeling uh, exposed you know so it takes the time to even really get closer to the very core impression of being something yeah. so the thought coverings the thoughts cover it and that but the the jitta of the unawakened beings is essentially painful always painful not necessarily anguish but uncertain restless and lost uh, needing um, fearing shaking from one moment to the next so but then it's also the place where we experience generosity loving kindness compassion uh, uh, respect uh, all those qualities but so it's there and you know it's both the most wounded and frightened and even desperate thing and also the most courageous and beautiful thing So that's what we're handling. And I suppose I've just qualified my remark the Four Noble Truths is the the most important yeah. The Buddha I mean in his, what he's called his gradual his um, gradual graduate or gradual approach would often first of all teach dana as something that would 
yeah, because that's something. Oh, yeah, I can. I know what that is. I can get to that, and it it it, it brings my chitter into a into a happy state, into a good state. Then he would teach sila, virtue. Oh, I'm to brings my chitter into an upright state. I feel a bit more dignified, respect. Then he teach. Well, you see, why why everybody experiences that? Why is it that people end up quarrelling and losing their morality and not being generous <laughs> and getting stingy? And you see, the problem is the senses. You know, the sense doors, sense bases are problematic because they're, you know, the chitta gets lost in the senses. It doesn't mean there's nothing wrong with the senses per se. But one can, one has to be careful with them. One gets lost in them. They can they they easily uh, generate passion and greed and uh, comparisons and who's got more than I have and I want more of that and then we lose our generosity. We lose our sila. The chitta loses itself in the perceptions of the sense world. So he says, well, because of this, you want to develop renunciation, the ability to restrain step back said if you've done that then now we can talk about the four noble truths because <laughs> mm. you've seen what what can be liberated you've seen how what can be beautiful and liberated you can see how it gets tarnished yeah so seeing this you realize there's something to be done here and it's not just about being a nice you know being a better person it's about look you're going to suffer. <laughs> Probably you are suffering, but you're going to suffer even worse if you don't get this together. <laughs> and you can. You can get it together, you know, really, completely to the point where there's no sorrow, even when you have every right to feel sorrowful. You know, misery, pain, disease, death, loss of loved ones, and you don't get smashed up by it. He said, you know, indeed one would have every right to feel distraught, you know, by such things. But even the jitta is liberated, even these things, they can be sensed, but you don't feel yourself broken up by it. You have strength and clarity and this is going to, you know, really <coughs> worth doing. So, you know, it's the, so we need to, you know, uh, really focus on on this um, what the first noble truth really you know makes very clear in a kind of total way is like you know the predicament of the chitta and of course why people don't cultivate the four noble truths is because they don't see the predicament of the chitta I'm fine I'm okay yeah life's good I've got yeah, da, 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 da. Okay, that's a problem. You know, switch on the telly. I'm not suffering at all. Other oh, people are pain and nuisance, and things break down. I get angry. I'm not suffering. <laughs> really? He <laughs> said, "Well, let's take this away from you. See what happens. <laughs> let's take away, you know, your property. Let's take away your health. <laughs> that which you can't guarantee. Yeah." Things that you think you have are there and realize they're not. Yeah. Let's get real about this. And then you, you see how, how shaky the foundation for uh, happiness is in that sense. Yeah.
but really I think because in the first number of truth can for a, someone who doesn't really quite get it can seem like a recipe for misery you know here we are teaching suffering but everything's suffering what a cure you know um, but <laughs> that isn't quite what it says it says you know there is this suffering which is conditioned by these experiences you know, you know. but there can be the release from that through the release from being conditioned by these experiences and there's a there's one point right in there it's uh, you know to do with an unconscious quality of grasping and craving that we don't even really see if you saw it you wouldn't do it but you don't see it and you don't you don't see that the, the pain of it you don't see the inadequacies of it we don't see that we, it's happening and we don't sense that it couldn't happen you know, that's the unawakened if you come closer to the jitta you recognize oh yeah there is there is that <coughs> yeah Ajahn, for the uh, benefit of the group I'd like to say something that's okay it was my question about jitta yes okay so um, and I'll share this with the group um, when I was about 21 I was really really miserable and uh, I wanted to kill myself and uh, I, was, I said to myself right I tell you what I'm not going to kill myself I'll find out what this is, what, what it is, what is this, you know, what is this experience. And excuse me for any delusion that you find in me, there's plenty, I'm sure. But recently I, I believe that having studied as well Chitta in another form and from another uh, type of teacher, but a similar thing, that recently I had an experience of the felt experience of that, which I don't want to have to sit here and explain in words, but what it changed was, um, or what it allowed me to see was the formless and recognize suffering or clinging as something that is formation. And therefore it changes the definition of suffering because you realize it's suffering because when you recognize all nature as formless then every formation becomes something that will pull you away from your true nature if jitta is formless so I feel like it's important to explore that as well as teach the, the Four Noble Truths because to the conditioned mind, the Four Noble Truths mean one thing. But in an experience of formlessness, the suffering is much clearer. Yeah, but the only reason why we investigate the mind is because you're suffering. Yeah. So in a way, that's what came first for you. Sure. <laughs> no. 
When calm is the state, but there is no vitality, it is not dullness, but the state of just the surface calm. How to bring out vitality when there is no inner vitality to open or bloom? Is it there? If so, how to access it? Is the absence of it points to deep desire for not to be? So, when when there's calm but there's no vitality, it is not dullness, but the state of just the surface calm. Right, so it's not about being dull, it's just a su- sort of su- surface calm, superficial calm. How to bring out vitality, there's not a sense of brightness. Huh. Is it there, if so, how to access it? Is the absence of it, I presume, vitality points to deep desire for not to be, but it could be the case. So different kinds of uh, experiences that we can call calm. So there are ones that calm, which is a kind of torpid state, whereby just the energy is turned down and uh, there's not much going on. Um, there be a, can be a calm which is, uh, I don't know what this person is saying, is not dull, but um, a surface calm. So as if perhaps there's not much sensitivity or a loss of um, vitality, a loss of uh, specific uh, energy in things. Um, so how to bring it out is um, calm, that's it, has to be mixed and balanced with uh, energy. And energy is generally generated by investigation. So you start to inquire into either the calm state itself or, um, you know, uh, the objects that make it calm. You know, what, what the mind is resting on when it's calm. So, uh, you know, if the mind is resting on the breath or something and becoming calm, then it, it doesn't feel like it's it's really bright. Then we might need to investigate the breath actually is not a single thing, it's a constant changing uh, quality. There isn't such a thing as a breath actually. Uh, it's not, there's just an event flow of breathingness, which is various qualities to it if the mind picks that up then the mind is becoming much more alive and vitalized so you investigate the object more thoroughly to see its its impermanent changeable um, conditioned nature or you can investigate the calm state itself uh, you know what does this feel like um, is so something absent um, so if it, if it feels like there's not enough energy, then the quality of investigation or even changing the object the mind is resting on, walking up and down, um, deliberate inquiry will help to sort of um, move it around a bit. If the calm seems to be something that is to do with avoidance, like um, the last sentence, desire to not be, called vibhava, tanha, which is a, uh, 
a, a, a kind of movement to avoid experience. So you, you can kind of get a bit sort of blasé or numbed out. Then the mind, then we should distinctly pick up a particular theme to investigate, such as the parts of the body, the movements of the body. So you've got something quite specific that the mind has to engage with and, and kind of uh, feel and report on. So that will help to, if the mind seems to be with, withdrawing in an unskillful way, then you bring it forward. Training the mind is like knowing the time when it has to be brought forward, the time when it has to be reined in, (laughs) the time when it has to be kind of um, rested, the time when it has to be gladdened, and the time when it has to be enjoyed. So so generally, you don't want to look just to go calm as as some... some, um, Something that's always the best thing to do. It's also addressed to you. (laughs) What is the difference between meditation and concentration? Is not concentration an integral part of meditation. Yes. <laughs> I mean, of course. I mean, cons- like concentration or samadhi is the quality of mind to be collected, to, to be focused onto an object. It's almost like you can, when there is concentration in the mind, one aspect, of course, is what Dhyachan got just said. It's the calmness. And it's like with concentration, the mind is collected, is not dispersed into different areas and scattered. It's kind of really settling, coming together, and being with the object. Other aspects of the meditation practice is the right amount of energy, energy in in balance with relaxation, I would say, and also mindfulness, the, the ability to recognize what is going on in the mind. It's like the ability to, like mindfulness helps us to stay with the object and actually out of my personal experience I can say that when mindfulness is applied in the right way, concentration arises out of that. So if we learn to use mindfulness in our meditation practice in the right way, then out of that concentration, the experience of the collectedness of mind comes out of that. So yes, a concentration is one 
important aspect of our meditation practice. But and then it's like when the Buddha speaks about samadhi, like concentration. Um, he often brings it into the direction of the absorptions of the jhanas. Um, there's that kind of concentration practice, but when we want to practice inside, a certain amount of concentration is necessary too, a certain amount of collectedness of mind, of calmness of mind, of steadiness is needed. Otherwise, it usually tends to go more into proliferation than really investigation. And so, like, when we look at concentration practices, often we look into, like, how to establish the, the absorptions. I mean, we don't practice that a lot here in the monastery, but in other places you will, you will find teachers who teach just absorption practices. And that are levels of concentration that go much deeper and are much more refined than what we are usually what we are exploring here. And then on the other hand, like these concentration experiences can also happen just kind of, so to say, unexpectedly. We can find ourselves in our practice just moving into a state of pity, which is um, which is the second absorption, which is the the state of mind that feels very blissful. It's it's collected and it's it's kind of also translated with rapture. So and you can find in your meditation practice you can naturally move into that place without even intending to do so. So that does happen. And it happens when the mind has a certain amount of collectedness, of coming together, of being focused. That's all that comes straight away for me. Would you like to say more about this, Jim? Well, let's have a look at it again. Mm -hmm. okay. yeah. <clears throat> well, really, pretty much the same thing, but, you know, we're dealing with two words, meditation. Well, that's really, what does that mean? Concentration, well, what does that mean? Um... You see, in the language of the Buddha, you have a range of words that, you know, can be used to what this English word meditation, bhavana, means cultivation. But that means cultivating, making, making certain qualities arise, such as happiness or energy or clarity. So that's cultivation, you know. You can talk about um, samatha, calm, vipassana, insight. You can talk about sati, mindfulness. You can talk about samadhi, 
concentration. You can so there's a range of things that all sort of come together. It's not like a such a clean, cleanly defined box. Yeah. And uh, concentration itself um, is part of what can occur. And uh, but then again, if you if you start to qualify what what that means, what actually the experience means, it means that certain things are reduced, and certain qualities are strengthened. So what's reduced essentially is distractedness, hindrances, and so on. You know, the, the, the obstructions that cloud the mind are reduced, eliminated. And the qualities of mind that give it certain brightness and firmness are encouraged and generated. Now that's all part of the ongoing cultivation. Now, you know, so that's what we're trying to cultivate all all the time. Yeah, and as that comes into fruition, then a unified, collected state of mind becomes available. Perhaps some, you know, for a few minutes, for longer periods of time, and so forth. That kind of becomes more available. So you look at it as very much more in terms of process rather than here's meditation, here's concentration. How do they fit together? The whole process is really about purifying the mind. Is is one perhaps the biggest most useful umbrella word to cover what's happening purifying the mind clearing away hindrance these defilements stresses and uh revealing and strengthening something more innately beautiful where these um, terms can prove rather counterproductive is for example we think you know i have i, I meditate I should meditate, I should meditate more, I don't meditate enough. Um, what is meditate? What kind of meditation do you do? Do you do Goenka meditation? Do you do Dzogchen meditation? Do you do Jhana meditation? Do you do some, which is the right kind of meditation to do? Do you meditate meditation? How long meditation? How long can you sit for in meditation? Is this really helping the mind to be clearer? Yeah. You know, it's like, do I get my melons from Waitrose or Tesco's? <laughs> um, should I have cantaloupe melon, big melon, small? You know, look, what do you want to do? You want to eat some fruit, you know? <laughs> Just sort of go to the nearest shop, they get something that sort of is good enough. <laughs> For now. And then with concentration can be really quite quite a, a difficult term because it tends to be used as as a verb, like you should con- concentrate, concentrate your mind. And that, that by and large, the Buddha doesn't use it that way. It says, uh, you know, um, clarify the mind, strengthen the mind, sustain mindfulness, develop understanding. Concentration is the unified state that begins to form as a result of that. So it's a different thing. And very often, you know, when we use such a term, you know, we think of trying to concentrate, trying to concentrate on one object. Now that may indeed, over time, be what begins to happen. The mind does settle into something. 
but by and large if you start like that it's going to be quite difficult a struggle and certain factors because what you're doing is already kind of limiting the range of the mind to hold on to attention on to say the tip of your nose yeah and your whole emphasis on practice is attention attention hold that attention and that kind of quality or practice some people can do this some people really can't do it uh, and it requires a lot of determination yes a lot of effort okay a lot your strong attention good where's the happiness uh where's the kindness um you know where's these other more also fruitful where's the where's the wisdom where's the reflectiveness going on in that so certain factors are not being brought in um and you know so we get a certain state of a uh, of a fixed attention which in english that's concentration but in buddhism it isn't it's it's fixed attention the the uh so we look at the required uh requirements for what will help samadhi arise and it's the elimination of um uh, sense desire ill will uh, sleepiness uh, restlessness and doubt ha- havering wavering and it's the accompanied by qualities such as uh, what we talked about vitaka vichara that ability to you know stay on track and feel what's going on point so that you could call concentration it's a little more mobile it's like that's that that's that that's that that's that that's the nearest thing that comes to what the english word to concentrate means but it's actually quite dynamic touch something how is that you see you're really getting a grip on something feeling something out and then um pity certain zestful happiness uh, which comes as the mind becomes free of of heavy uh distress it starts to get you start to get in flow as I was talking about in the qigong today you know when things start to flow along and your mind isn't stiff and rigid and worried and distracted you get pity certain oh yeah this is going and then sukha you start to feel a uh, result like a certain uh contented ease now that's the requirements you see for for what was called samadhi and with that the mind certainly well that you know why go anywhere else it, it, it unifies it sits down because it's getting its needs met it's getting fed and the, unfortunately again this isn't 100% but uh, quite uh, you know people can miss the quality of of really feeding feeding the mind it's like you you can drive it to focus on one point perhaps some people some of the time with enough effort determination it's good yeah that's those are not those are good qualities but you know you're going it's like you you're making something work are you feeding it you know 
that's what the piti sukha is about. It's about the sense of the, the feeding and nourishing. Uh, also, you know, as a general process, um, <clears throat> when people's minds are already quite stressed and fatigued, then I don't think it's that kind to say, okay, let, you know, sit up straight and focus on this one point because you can't do it. Um, you know, or people, maybe some can, but uh, many people just say, many of you have just been zonking out, let's face it. <laughs> First day or so. <laughs> I just guess, can you sit upright? <laughs> So how how much how much, how high do you want to raise the bar, you know, in terms of effort and willpower and determination, without providing some kind of quality of of, of uh, releasing, relaxing, and, and and nourishing the mind. And that's that's that ongoing, you know, thorough cultivation, which should be something we take as whether we're sitting still or not whatever we do in our life we should be cultivating all the time this is not skillful this i don't need to do this is beautiful you know then that's bhavana and that's gonna long term that's gonna result in samadhi last one huh? Oh, right, this one. I haven't had this one in a few years. <laughs> yeah, I think we should put a footnote. In the reflections on sharing the blessings, there's the line, may they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Explain what is meant by the threefold bliss. So the threefold bliss is the, first of all, the human bliss, which means uh, good friends, companionship, good health, clear conscience, freedom from regret, and so forth, one lives as a happy, contented human being. That's the, f- the second bliss is the, the Deva Loka, is the heaven realms, so which uh, you can, uh, they are. Uh, and so these are the kind of um, ethereal or, or um, realms, and you can either take that as however you, however you whatever your stance is on cosmology, but in Buddhist cosmology, you have another level of, of beings on a kind of more refined level than the human ones. And those are called the devas, and they, they're, they're happy beings. So, and the, the, the understanding is that this is uh, where the citta climbs to, or goes to, or, it, or what arises in the citta on the fulfillment of uh, beautiful deeds and uh, loving kindness and so on so then there's that quality it's a kind of more elevated uh, that's the second goes up to the Brahma Loka and the third is the bliss of Nibbana so I think we should (laughs) that's probably about it actually I'm just honest 
You know, in the kind of you know the Buddhist world or Buddhist cult, culture of the Buddhist world, it's people. Are, it's really it's, it's important to be happy. You know, and it really is considered not kind of some tri- trivial, frivolous thing, but really important to be happy. Uh, they take happiness very seriously. Or as <laughs> 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 we, you know, we tend to get kind of more ideal, idealistic and ideologies and things like that and, and, and stuff like that is more something that people in the West tend to resonate with. Um, but uh, so the sense is, you know, well, maybe we're not going to realize Nibbana, but I'm going to become a good human being. That's good. You know, that's good. It's not to be sniffed at, you know. Uh, so that's really so people can cultivate uh, with this feeling of I'm going to become, you know, free from regrets, um, uh, personally respected, um, loving kindness, good friends. That's that's good, you know, and, and that that's enough, uh, uh, you know. And so quite a lot of it, people just get um, a sense of. Uh, you know, gratitude and contentment around fairly small things. You're not just looking for, I only want Nibbana, or that's that's where I've got to go to. Uh, And say, no, count your blessings, you know. Um, And this is going to mean, you know, you don't lose your temper, that's good. And, And, you know, you stop drinking, that's good. Appreciate it. So there's a lot more mudita consciousness. Mudita is the sense of being able to appreciate um, the good and the skillful mm. wherever. That's what we give. Anamodana is the chant which is saying, this has been a good deed, this has been good. Consider it. Dwell in the goodness. And uh, it helps to just and I'm not you know, I don't want to kind of make some kind of too angular a statement because yes, it's important to have that sense of, of, you know, both urgency to, to not just, you know, coast, uh, and waste the opportunity, but also balance that with the, the happiness and the gladness of nobody's bothering me. I am. I'm a good person. You know, I'm doing skillful deeds. I can, you know. That then that is helping to nourish the heart in the present moment, where perhaps we haven't realised third, second jhana, and we're not arahants. But still, if we just think, "Oh, I'm not an arahant, you know, I can't do this," that doesn't help either. <laughs> if you say, "You say you want to use these mudita consciousness to enjoy the goodness that you have," that will actually mean the mind has got some can rise because it's not continually falling through the floor of doubt and despair and all those things and then it will naturally tend to rise it's considered the first uh, 
one of the early um, bases actually for samadhi and liberation is gladness yeah. uh, you know and uh, it said when I consider you know uh, having made an offering today I feel glad so, you know, just focus on that element pick it up linger in it drink the juice of that in this will help your mind to free itself from this nagging, stressful feeling of inadequacy. That's good. That will help you towards samadhi. And samadhi will help you towards liberation. So, we're, again, I must emphasize, you know, that, that you know, the cultivation of samadhi is not just dependent upon holding your attention on one point. It's about the results of doing good, fruitful things, and taking the time to dwell in it. And then so you build up the foundation, and as you build that foundation, you keep shaping it, and you don't need less of that, just tidy that up, and it's going to come like that. You, You can't stop. You can't start at the top of the pyramid. You've got to keep those foundations strong, and then they're going to grow up. They're going to grow. And don't doubt. Happiness is important. May you attain the threefold bliss, or even the onefold bliss. (laughs) 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 So let's pause for the evening.